Welcome to The Rebound, where we'll explore the issues facing supply chain managers as our industry gets back up and running in a post-COVID world. This podcast is hosted by Abe Eskenazi, CEO of the Association for Supply Chain Management, and Bob Troublecock, Editorial Director of Supply Chain Management Review. Remember that Abe and Bob welcome your comments. Now to today's episode. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the great supply chain disruption. This is a special episode of The Rebound coming to you live from ASM Connect. Now, we've never done this before. We're kind of doing it without a net. Uh, I'm Bob Troublecock. I'm the editorial director of Supply Chain Management Review Magazine. And I'm joining Bob. This is Abe Eskenazi. Welcome, everyone. Well, and joining me and Abe today are three experienced supply chain professionals who we know you're going to want to hear from. Now, before I introduce our guests, a quick note. Immediately following this event, you can join us in the Cafe Connection, or the Connection Cafe, I'm sorry, for an interactive discussion, one where you get to chime in, share your thoughts and your experiences with me and Pat Bauer, who I'm about to introduce. So, Pat, briefly, tell us a little about yourself, the company you work for, and your role. Uh, sure. My name is Pat Bauer. I um, I work for a company called Asiro. We make um, a whole variety of chemicals, including pharmaceutical intermediates, excipients, those products that make um, you know vaccines more bio- bioavailable to uh, to consumers. And I've been it's one of the more interesting things. I've changed jobs during COVID, so hopefully I'll talk a little bit about that. First, let me introduce Marsha Bray. Marsha is Vice President of Distribution for GE Appliances, where she's involved in all facets of delivering a world-class service to U.S. companies, including warehousing logistics. Uh, over the years, Marsha's worked in design and engineering, um, quite a bit of different roles and responsibilities. And then finally, we have uh, Chris Pickett. Uh, Chris is the Chief Strategy Officer for Flock Freight, a provider of non-asset-based shared truckload services. Chris has more than 20 years of experience in global supply chain management, Enterprise Software Development and Transportation Market Economics. Welcome to the three of you. Bob? Thanks, Abe. Thanks, everyone, and thanks, Abe. Uh, You know, when we started this podcast about 18 months ago, it was because the supply chain was in the news thanks to shortages of essentials of daily life like toilet paper and household cleansers and chicken parts and in honor of GE appliances, appliances, right? Um, people were wondering, what is this supply chain thing? Why isn't it working? Because of the great supply chain disruption. Abe? Uh, yeah, this is a, an extraordinary time, I'm, I'm sure, for each one of your organizations, as well as for you and your teams. Uh, we're living in an extremely dynamic environment. It wasn't that long ago that uh, consumer expectations for a high variety, rapid delivery, and reasonable cost were the hallmarks of almost every supply chain in the market. Uh, there's no doubt that we're living in what has been described as the great supply chain disruption. Uh, whether we're talking about COVID or whether we're talking about cybersecurity or the Suez Canal, environmental challenges, we're talking about a significant challenge to the demand as well as the supply for supply chains today. This has been a significant um, increase in role responsibilities for supply chain professionals at almost every level of the organization, not to mention the leadership required to coordinate all the various aspects of response and recovery as well as sustainability for supply chains. So uh, let's get into this and get from our uh, experts here some of the insight and some of the learnings that they've had from the disruptions and hopefully some of the things that you can do as a you know participant to in, 
not only enable your organization to withstand these shocks, but hopefully bounce back even better in the future. So uh, let's get started. Uh, first, to each of you, uh, you represent three very different industries in the uh, life sciences, appliance manufacturing, and logistics. How your organizations not only experienced the disruption, but some of the learnings that you had from it. Pat, let's start with you. Life sciences has been on everybody's topic uh, recently with vaccines, tests, as well as treatments. Give us a sense of what's going on from your perspective. I think it's a mostly what what folks would expect. We've have, we have um, all the normal supply chain disruptions that that are you know very much in the public. We make uh, excipients and pharmaceutical and intermediates. Excipients are those products that help vaccines work better. Um, that help medicine in general work better. They make um, make the actives more bioavailable inside the body. So you can imagine that there's been an uptick in that volume. But there's also been an uptick across the broad chemical spectrum. Consumers are buying an awful lot of products of all different types, a lot of consumer goods, a lot of products that, that are cleaning products, um, everything, it, almost anything that has a surfactant or some sort of chemical agent in there that is uh, disinfecting has, has certainly seen an uptick in demand. And obviously my company provides them. I think one of the universal themes, so I moved from consumer goods to the chemical industry. And one of the really oddities is that the expectations of customers are nearly identical. There's that tremendous desire for really timely, timely material availability, and that hasn't changed. And all the behaviors that we saw on the consumer side, all of those, all of those, um, you know, let me get the extra roll of toilet paper or let me get the extra box of pasta are happening inside of the, the everyday uh, purchasing agent side. So I'm curious what Marsha saw because I, I think it's probably very similar inside of GE than and GE appliances as it is inside of Aceto. Yeah. So, Marshall, let's pick it up. Uh, quite a bit of different uh, production, um, quite a bit of focus on the appliance industry as well as warehousing, distribution, and logistics almost on everybody's agenda today. Give us a yeah. sense of some of the impact and learnings. Certainly. I, I think Pat said it well, and you absolutely can take um, his comments and apply it to the appliance industry. I think what surprised us the most, um, as you know, maybe some several mm -hmm. manufacturers, is um, just how fast the demand change happened for GE appliances in such a short period of time, um, especially for a business that, you know, we've been around over a hundred years. Um, I'd like to think that we had good forecasting models, um, but like many, our forecasts for the future depended on the past. And all of a sudden you had to throw all that out the window. Um, essentially for GE appliances within a matter of uh, months, probably six weeks, we went from a make to stock business to a make to order business. Um, because we had drained all of our inventory um, throughout our network um, across the United States in such a short period of time, and the demand kept coming. So, you know, we really, um, fortunately, we had started to invest in certain areas of growth that helped us um, overcome, but very, in a short period of time, we immediately went into tactical one-by-one -one problem solving. How do we meet our commitments to our customers? How do we create commitments we can, with, you know, we, we can, you know, uh, deliver <laughs> essentially and um, you know so it all had to change what the way we were used to giving promise dates to customers we had to evolve that and and fortunately keeping open lines of communication with our customers as we've learned in this environment um, how to work there and we're still learning 
um, from that perspective. From a long term, it's about growth. How do, how do you expand uh, your capabilities in your supply chain to deliver more products to satisfy the demand um, and be able to, again, ensure that you're communicating, effect communicating effectively? Mm -hmm. Chris, uh, give me from your perspective, uh, you know, the, some of the challenges that you've encountered. Yeah, I think to, to build on, on Pat and Marsh's comments, you know, you know, what Flock and other, you know, non-SABS logistics providers, you know, where we play a role is kind of being an extension of, of all these supply chains that are running into the same problems. I don't think we had a single uh, shipping customer in any industry vertical that wasn't profoundly impacted by the just wild gyration of, of consumption patterns. Where, you know, think back to, you know, March, April 2020, all of a sudden, you know, things were literally shut down, right, to support virus mitigation efforts, entire auto industry, uh, entire services sector, uh, and as a result, you saw this massive swing of, of surge into uh, eat at home, you know, groceries, right? Cleaning products, you know, medical supplies, uh, you know, supply and demand for, you know, freight flows that didn't exist before, right? So how do you, how do you adapt to that? And how do you uh, do the best job of, of leveraging the resources that you have, right, to get the right product to the right place, you know, at the right time? So I think on the onset, you know, just like any office network, you know, we went from 100% onsite in the office to 100% work from home almost literally overnight, right? So how do you, how do you adapt to that? And I think supply chain that has done a fundamentally impressive job of, of doing just that. And we went into this phase of, you know, almost, you know, unforeseen collaboration where everyone's kind of in it together, right? How do we get trucks turned faster? How do we support uh, touchless delivery, electronic bills of laning to try to keep everyone safe as the supply chains try to at least stay in operation? And it became this really kind of galvanizing, uh, you know, event where, you know, and I, I think I speak for everyone's on the, you know, the, on the side of supporting supply chains. It's, you know, kind of created this mission where I think we all kind of got behind and it became a process of, you know, what can we figure out? How can we leverage technology? What are the different things we can do uh, to support these different supply chains, you know, in different ways as we've kind of muddled our way through this pandemic? I, I got to tell you, Abe, I, both Chris and Marcia said something that really strikes home with me and it's the collaboration and the communication. I mean, we tried to do everything we could with internal stakeholders. So my group services our sales force. We tried to do everything we could to inform them of anything we knew about about a container coming in or a date coming in on a container that was coming in. It, even if it was a day later, we were trying to inform internal stakeholders and in turn trying to inform our customers. And I think that's one of the things that's really it's really helped us. And as lead times changed, we tried to reach out to our customers through through countless emails and, and, and conversations with them about about how the dynamics of the business are changing and how the, they need to put orders out a little bit further into the horizon. So uh, there was collaboration everywhere. It's sort of unfounded. And, and I think the biggest thing that has, that's been the challenge for me has been visibility. Mm -hmm. I can't see everything I want to see. I want that really sentient supply chain. I, I want eyes on, ears on. I, I, I want to be touching the supply chain every single day. And I think the technology basis that we live in just isn't there yet to provide that at this point in time. You know, I, I would build off that, Pat, um, because it, it doesn't, you can't just decide during a pandemic or during any crisis that you have in supply chain that you can just make the communication better. You can make that partnership better. And I, I would really stress that you have to have the culture within your company and you have to have the relationships not only with your customers, but with partners, like our logistics partners, for example, you know, Chris, um, it, it really is critical. All of a sudden, when you have your standard work and what, what worked yesterday doesn't work today and you have to change it, but you don't know what you're going to 
change too. Mm-hmm. You got to have that collaboration if you're going to move fast and you're going to meet everybody's needs when everything is changing around you. So, um, yeah. And we definitely felt a, a lot of progress. There were kind of those typical silos between buyer and seller, even direct competitor with direct competitor. It's no longer mm-hmm. about that. It's how do we get you know containers turned faster? You know, how do we get, uh, you know, how do we leverage uh, the, the available production capacity of that GE plant to, to get stuff moving uh, yeah. to maximum potential, regardless of who gets what lane and what load, let's figure it out. Yeah. It's fine because one of the things that, that I did was, uh, so I'm like every other consumer. I think I'm a consumer exemplar. I'm no different than, <laughs> than the average American consumer, right? So I started looking around my house and said, what can I do to improve my house, my working environment? I'm working from home. I like to cook. So I decided to redo my, my kitchen. So here's my first mention of G profile. <laughs> Marshall, we're going to start counting now. I went and I ordered a G profile refrigerator, a Viking stove, and some other maker for a dishwasher because I wanted to renovate my, my kitchen. And I have to tell you, all the other makers gave me delays. And G, mm-hmm. so to their credit, um, they kept informed me and they've held the date on it. But it's, I have waited now four and a half months for a dishwasher. And it's amazing. And I, I'm just curious whether, whether GE Appliances has done any, any market research on nesting behaviors. Like, like help me understand. I, see, I see it from a consumer perspective. I get it from a supply chain perspective. But what are you seeing inside of GE? Yeah, it's a great question. And it definitely informs the supply chain, right? So are we in a bubble? Is this going to pop or mm-hmm. is it something that's going to mm-hmm. sustain? And I do wish we knew, Pat. Um, we we mm-hmm. are talking to our customers and consumers quite a bit. And what you described, I think, is typical um, of many people. They had, they had money to spend, but they couldn't spend it in the, their normal everyday mm-hmm. lives. You couldn't go out to restaurants like you normally do. You couldn't go mm-hmm. out. So you're home and now all of a sudden you're looking around at your four walls much more, you know, with that critical eye than you had before. And you're like, gosh, if I have to live here, I want to make it nice, right? And I'm gonna make it like and some people picked up new hobbies. Cooking's uh-huh. a great by the way hobby to uh pick up during the pandemic. But um so that that is what caused definitely an increase in demand. Like I said, you know, we've been here over a hundred years and so we feel like we had a good demand profile, you know, for our product. But right now we're in a situation where in the United States the demand is outstripping the supply for a a, a area of our, um, you know, of consumerism that has pretty much been saturated. Um, and so you actually see new competitors coming into the space, which, you know, what, so what we're trying to do is absolutely understand the consumer side of it um, from our house of brands. And so you mentioned profile. Thank you, Pat, for doing that. I feel like I owe you one. Uh, but we do have different brands and different consumers want different things. And as the supply chain, we have to understand not just the demand profile, but that uh, profile by brand and and who is buying and where do we think um, you know that continued volume is going to be um, and making sure that we have the right we we actually are producing twenty five percent more volume now than we did this time last year and we have plans to continue to grow it and it's not enough so waiting four months for a dishwasher is not acceptable and um, you know something that we continue to work on um, in the meantime what we can do is be great at executing to the date I promise. If I if I have to give you a three or four month delivery, that, by gosh, I'm going to hit it. Um, and what can we do to be able to shrink those delivery times? So a lot of work continuing to go on and understanding consumer demand, but at the same time, not getting hung up on, 
forecast, but working what's in front of you, right? And making sure that you deliver for the demand that you have um, now. Marsha, Marsha, how do you avoid the bullwhip effect? Um, we're, we're seeing it in a variety of different commodities as well as uh, products and services and that we're seeing this, you know, irrational surge of demand to your point that you were making before about data drives the decision for the organization. You've got a hundred years of data. I'm not sure how, how relevant it is even five years ago. I don't ago. think it is. <laughs> <laughs> Give me a sense of yeah. the you know, your use of data in your forecasting as well as your demand planning. Yeah. Well, you know, the way I would, what came to mind when you started to ask that question is hoarding, right? I think in supply yeah. chain, you know, I used to run a factory and I certainly have an appreciation. If you want to have a good day, you have all your parts to be able to mm-hmm. run, right? What you're, what you're going to make. And so there's a tendency to want to, I'll say hoard. It's probably just in normal consumerism. That's why toilet paper flies off the shelf, you know, so fast people panic, right? And they, they think they can't get what they're going to need in the future. So they buy as much as they can now. And as supply chain, um, you know, people, we, we need to be really careful not to fall into that trap. Um, it, it, it creates a ton of waste, as everybody knows, right? You study Six Sigma or Lean, it, it creates more opportunities for defects. You can't see, it's actually going to make your uh, production output worse um, by going that route. So what's important for me is to make sure what I make, we are selling. And, and when we see that discrepancy, that's when we need to jump in and problem solve. And by the way, it goes both ways. It's not just problem solving within mm-hmm. supply chain, it's problem solving within commercial as well. And I think that's something that we're really stressing is this is a collaborative effort at G Appliances to you know, improve our positioning in the environment we're in. One could say you're in a crisis and we're trying to work our way and survive the crisis. I don't see it that way. I think we're working to make ourselves better because of the crisis or this event that's happening and that our supply chain will be stronger. Our communication work with commercial to ensure that, you know, what we make, they can sell, what they're selling, we're aware of, and that we have that plan. We will be better for this as we come out the other end um, of this pandemic uh, to be able to have a more responsive supply chain. And that's what we're after. Yeah, I think, I think that, you know, commentary on demand planning is huge. Every time I see the clip of the, you know, however many container ships are, are you know, anchored off of Long Beach right now and the, the countdown's been continuing, but I was thinking, you know, how early do you have to place that order, right, for that merchandise just to get it to that point, you know, in time for holiday season? Maybe it used to be, you know, a three-month lead time. You placed it six months ahead to get ahead of, you know, disruptions in Vietnam. You know, aside from the hoarding or the shadow orders or the overage, you know, yeah, how likely are you to have gotten that demand signal right? By the time that stuff gets off these containers, right. devan through the supply chain, makes it to retail, you know, yeah. what's the likelihood? How much that will you have gotten right? It's, it's going to be less than it used to be. That's so, Chris, uh, our, our lead times have literally doubled. They went from 42 to 45 days out of Asia to almost 100 days now for any product that we're trying to source out of Asia. Asia. There is an interesting commentary on hoarding in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and having having hoarding not really affect either your personal life or your or your uh, your professional life, I violated both of those rules. <laughs> I, I'm on Facebook and I'm looking around on social media and I'm seeing that there's a run on pasta, and I need my I need my pasta every every Wednesday. <laughs> I grew up as a Prince Spaghetti guy, right? So. So I had to, I have to have my pasta on Wednesday mm-hmm. and, um, and I bought a case of pasta on Amazon. 
And I actually felt bad after I did it. I'm like, the, I'm the least food challenge person in the world, I think. And yet I bought a case. And I started thinking about it. I brought that into work. I brought that hoarding. I want to protect. Mm-hmm. I want to protect my base. So inside the consumer good company I work for, I, I told my planners, order up. Pad the schedule. I, I told them to build mm-hmm. some extra extra component and raw material stock. I went through all of those behaviors that I exhibited personally. And like I say, I feel bad, but I help protect the organization and the asset base of the, of the company by doing that. And then I flip over and I go from the consumer goods side where we were buying chemicals and, and OTC pharma intermediates. And then I flip over to the chemical side and I look at the demand patterns. I remember when I issued those buy orders, and then I look on the chemical side, and they're they're coincident with each other. So, and and the company I work for was not was company I work for now was not a vendor of the company I came from. Mm-hmm. So, completely independent sources of data, you are able to see the hoarding effects. The same base human instinct, yeah. In planning organizations, saying I need more. Yeah. And Oh, uh, let me ask a question here since um, yeah. all of you have been talking about customer experience. And um, if you read the Gartner Top 25, something called CX has been creeping in more and more and more to their Top 25 analysis to where it's a metric they're starting to measure, you know, the Top 25 supply chains by. And, uh, you know, you're all in different industries, but you all have customers, whether they're consumers like Marsha or probably B2B like Pat. Uh, Chris, I'm, I'm presuming you're in the B2B space as well. Um, how was customer experience, A, disrupted? I think we've talked a little bit about that. But B, how are you rethinking what you do in your supply chains to either enhance or address the customer experience? Yeah, I'd say one thing we encountered early on and became a kind of a great, I don't want to say teaching moment, but theme of just the importance of, of empathy in, in these human interactions and just remembering how much strain everyone is under, you know, regardless of where they sit in these supply chains, you know, from a business performance and uncertainty or risk, you know, let alone the whole, you know, healthcare aspect of, you know, the whole thing. So I think really reinforcing that sense of, uh, you know, communicating with empathy, you know, leading with empathy. And, you know, what that kind of evolved into is a bit of kind of rethinking where it's, you know, we're not really in the transportation business. Yeah, sure we are, but it's not just about trying to find the, the lowest way to get that, you know, four pallet shipping from point A to point B, it's, you know, how do we enable things like uh, shorter transit times? And if we can compress transit times, what does that allow a supply chain planner to do? They can, you know, postpone somewhere else up through the supply chain. If we can figure a way to reduce the incidence of damage in transit, what does that do? So yeah, it saves money for sure, but it also protects, you know, super scarce inventory. Yeah, you know, these days, the, the potential downside impact of, you've, you've done everything right to produce that good, you've sourced the components, you've, you've built the thing, you've got a tealer component, you're your customer, they unload the truck and, and, and there's been damage. It's not just a claim and an unhappy customer, it's you, that could be, you know, in some cases, right, catastrophic. So how do we rethink the things that we offer in the marketplace, whether it's a, a technology capability, whether it's just a process improvement, and really trying to, again, lead with empathy and then put ourselves in the shoes of, of folks that we're solutioning for, you know, such that, you know, what we're out in the market offering is something that, you know, immediately resonates and, and it makes each of these supply chains better. I, I have to tell you, there's a lot of that in um, in what we tried to do as well. Certainly internal empathy with our mm-hmm. stakeholders and external 
we understand what people need and why they're asking us to do things with expediency. And we sort of work against those objectives. But I think Marsha brought up a really interesting point about how we come out of this uh, COVID experience. And and for us, we're, we're doing everything we can to come out of this better. And I think leading teams inside of our company to, to that, that common goal of coming out of this better, I think, is, has really made a difference. It's leading, uh, leading with positivity and improvements. Um, and I, I look at some of the things that we've done from improving our workflows to consolidating our distribution networks to six acquisitions, six acquisitions wow. during COVID. Um, it's a hiring new personnel. It's a putting people through through uh, CLTD training. I can go on and on. We're at sort of the broad expanse of all the things you'd want to do to set yourself up well for the future. We're doing right now. And I think Marsha talked about G appliances doing that. We are certainly doing that. And uh, it sets a tone. And it sets a tone for 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 of optimism coming out of something that at times could actually feel a little bit dark. Um, it, it sort of moves you forward. So I, it, I think it's been tremendously instructive. And I, I, I you know, I, I gotta, I gotta praise my leadership at Aceto for, for leading us in that direction. Yeah. I, I think anytime you're in a crisis, you can bury your head and try to survive. Right. Or you can figure out how this is going to make you stronger and it's going to make you better, Pat. And, and you know, I think at GE Appliances, when you talk about uh, customer experience, I think what you really have to be careful, especially for companies who've been around for a while, is not to get too married to the metrics that you use to say, am I successful or am I not successful? Because I can tell you right now, you know, if we were to use the metrics that we had in the past, we probably would have failed initially because we lost all of our inventory. So we're going to stop. <laughs> business, but we would have more patted ourselves on the back and say, we're okay. We're not good. We're not good. You have a consumer over here waiting, you know, four months for a dishwasher. That's not good. Um, and so I think it's really important to constantly be in touch. Um, the way, you know, Chris said, Pat said, you got to be listening to your customers. You got to understand what do they need from you now? What makes sense? And how can we find, you know, the right way to measure ourselves that's reflective that we will win in your eyes. Um, and we have to constantly challenge ourselves to do that. In our supply chain, then, to be able to be responsive to those metrics, we have to constantly think about how we can create flexibility in supply chain, um, you know, and how we can really shrink supply chain where it makes sense. And I will say, fortunately, before the pandemic, we were on this journey. Um, but during the pandemic, uh, we also have been reshoring suppliers. Um, over the past five years, um, we have 50% more U.S. suppliers than we did previously. And that has allowed us to have more flexibility in terms of where our inventory is coming from, not being so dependent on ports and longer lead times. Um, and, you know, and I think also having a technology team, like right now, everyone is dealing with shortages of chips or plastics or, right, you, you name it, it's a new flavor that we fix one and something else pops up. So, you know, again, you can get frustrated and mad that it, it keeps piling on, or you can do something about it. Like our technology, our engineers are constantly working on dual sourcing, finding other options, designing new chips, designing new, you know, that we do, where do we have suppliers? Who can make product now? And how can we change the design? So it's almost the supplier driving the design versus mm -hmm. traditionally, 
you have a design and supply chain's got to go out and find the best way to make the design. But we've, you know, created some of that flexibility and that mindset. So it's not, you know, in fact, I would say our technology team doesn't feel frustrated. They feel empowered. They're helping mm-hmm. our customers be successful because they act, they can take action where if we'd stuck with our traditional buckets of work, we, we would never, we would mm-hmm. never you're bringing up a really interesting point, and I, uh, let me go back to a couple of points that um, you're all making. Number one, about your response to the disruption. And uh, interesting study with the, we did with The Economist in terms of how organizations at a, at a strategic level responded. And we found out two uh, major directions. Number one, get me back to where I was before the pandemic or the disruption. Just get me back to what I considered my normal operating organization. What I'm hearing from all of you is that you took this opportunity to fundamentally change the way that you worked, understanding that the changes in your, not only the supply chain, but your relationships with your vendors is going to change. And we saw a number of organizations, predominantly larger organizations, moving into a new frontier and saying, to your point, Marsha, we're no longer make the stock, we're make the order. If you had probably suggested that two to three years ago, you probably would have been laughed out of the office. So give me a sense, how purposeful was the decision to say, okay, we're not going back to where we were, we're moving forward, as opposed to we're learning, we're adapting, and we need to do something different. So give me a sense within your strategic discussion, how purposeful was it to say, we're not going back, we're moving forward? Yeah, well, at Geoplan, it was incredibly purposeful, right from the beginning. You know, and I'll tell you, when the pandemic, if you remember back in uh, 2020, when everything started to shut down, it was around February, March timeframe, we actually saw a decline in sales. And so mm-hmm. we, our leadership team got together and said, okay, what are we going to do to cost out, to manage this down? And then literally it was within four to six weeks, a totally, so you went from 180 degree of, here's the plan we thought we were going to do. Oh, now look, here's what's happening. And it was immediate to say, this is our chance to grow. We are going to be bullish in this. We are going to find a way to make this work. We're going to, we're going to think out of the box and, you know, we're not going to write the, we're not going to run the rule, the playbook we did before. We're, we're all going to pull together and we're going to figure out how to, even from the beginning, you know, we were deemed a, a business essential company. And so we were um, allowed to continue to operate our factory. So we, mm-hmm. you know, you know, the people who had more office jobs were working from home, but our factories, you know, really didn't stop. And we had to find a way to be able to support our employees, stay, stay true to your core business, right? That we take care of our people first. Mm-hmm. And we did. And then you find ways, uh, how are we going to run the lines? How are we going to produce? Right. And so anyway, for, for all the problems that have come up and continue, where's the opportunity for us to, to grow um, and uh, to strengthen our company. And I, I'll tell you, that's a lot more fun <laughs> to work, <laughs> honestly, um, than to panic right? and, and, to, and to wish it's going to go back. And I think, again, and it goes to culture and you can't start that culture in the middle of a crisis. You've got to embed mm-hmm. that culture before so that you can trigger it when, when you need it. Yeah. That's a good point. Before I throw it to Pat and Chris, so you can respond, give me a sense of your vendors. How did you bring them into the conversation? Because what Marshall's describing is a systemic change, not within just the four walls of GE. Obviously, you can't change one component without understanding input outputs. So uh, if you would add on the, you know, the, 
the challenge with bringing your partners along as well. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, one thing that I think most folks would say about non-asset-based transformation in general, I think it's always been inherently volatile, right? So it's, it's a model that, you know, we're out there to, to wrap our arms around, right, this ugly volatility on behalf of our shipping customers and absorb these, these shocks. And certainly, you know, we've never absorbed a shock like, like the one we're still absorbing. So I think that that culture, that, uh, that purposeful sense of, of the role we play in the marketplace, you know, was always there. Um, I think, you know, that wasn't necessarily true across our entire vendor base, which are, you know, hundred, you know, tens of thousands of, you know, typically right small trucking companies, right. That have, you know, have the same resources you know, as a flock or, or a GE appliances where, you know, there's a different level of fear and, you know, are we going to survive this thing, especially during the depths of, you know, you know, February, March, right. April, right. 2020. So, you know, a lot about, um, you know, just, you know, being completely reasonable and think exactly like payment terms, you know, what can we do to accelerate some mm -hmm. of the stuff and what we might not have done before. I mean, it might not make the right, sense short-term financially, but we think it's the right thing to do, you write long-term. So how do we, you know, flex and, and, and make, you know, flock easier to work with during these, you know, unforeseen times, really look, take this as an opportunity to build, you know, extend these branches and build long-term partnerships. You know, I think we, you know, one thing that's also interesting in, in kind of hearing Marx's comments, didn't mention the intro, but, you know, back in the early 2000s, I did my thesis research at MIT under Dr. Yossi Sheffi. And, you know, the topic was supply chain resiliency. It was on the back end of, uh, you know, 9-11, and, you know, suddenly U.S. borders were shut down, air traffic was, uh, you know, was grounded, everything was, was stalled and, you know, created, you know, tons of, of supply chain disruptions, as you might imagine. And so we, you know, surveyed, you know, tons of different, you know, uh, competitors of a bunch of different industries. And it was like, you know, given this, what are you going to do differently to, you know, invest in resiliency, right? So then it, it means investing, You're either building inventory buffers or, or redundant sources, you know, things that create short-term expense, not necessarily short-term right gain. So how do you justify these investments? And the answer was people weren't doing anything, right? Cause they couldn't, they didn't know how to calculate the ROI. Mm -hmm. How do you, how do you justify insurance for the thing that, that hasn't happened yet? Yeah. And if something bad does happen again, that we think all of our competitors will be harmed, you know, in the same way. So that doesn't make sense for us to step out and, and do things differently, but hearing, you know, Marsh's commentary and, and, and plenty of other forward thinking supply chains, we talk about, you know, let no crisis go to waste. You know, this, you know, by being forced to reckon with this, I think it created a huge opportunity for, uh, again, for forward-thinking organizations to kind of go through that process and radically rethink how you're, how, how you're up to market. It's a big difference from make the stock right to make the order. And so I think my hope is as we get, hopefully, no knock on wood, you know, further, you know, further, uh, you know, behind this, that those lessons, those, um, you know, those stances, those learnings, right, aren't, aren't laid to waste to kind of fall back into the easier way of doing things. It's fine. Our organization was in was at, at some points in time just absolutely brilliantly pur purposeful. We actually brought manufacturing. Some of those acquisitions were manufacturing assets, so we brought them on shore because we're that second or third tier provider. So we wanted to be able to provide that better customer experience in doing so. Mm -hmm. It was brilliantly strategical and pur purposeful at the same point in time. And internal to myself, I like. I drive, draw upon Sun Tzu, you know, inside of chaos and confusion, there's opportunity. And I've seen everything. I've seen this as an opportunity to expand how we and change how we do business. And I, I think one of the biggest questions I had for, for someone like Marsha in the type of organization she has, it's much closer to the consumer, is how do you change that model on the fly so quick? I think it's really hard to do. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think it's something that's 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 obvious and I, i'm just curious how ge appliances sort of pivoted so quickly 
Sure. Well, and I can tell you that our goal is not to be a make-to-order company <laughs> completely. <laughs> now, um, you know, what, so you, you don't have to wait for much. But, but, um, but what I will say is these are ideas that we had um, played with and we were trying some things. The pandemic has, or this crisis has accelerated the thinking. And so I, mm-hmm. I couldn't be more happy, uh, to be honest, because I would not have wished all of our inventory to drain away. I don't want to sure. disappoint our customers and not be able to do it. But what it has shown is that there is an opportunity for skew segmentation, that we can think in a different way. Customers, we can say, hey, you want this skew tomorrow? These are our make-to-stock skews. These are our deploy-to-order skews. These are our make-to-order skews. And so it has actually done a lot from uh, acceptance across our company. And I think even from believing our customers will accept something like that. So don't get me wrong. We're, our supply chain is still not balanced. Um, and we are still working through this. It's a matter of working with the what you have, the supply chain you have in front of you, right? And if your supply chain immediately goes to um, make to order, mm-hmm you see more problems than you ever really realize were there. It's, it's the, you know, you drain the inventory, you see the, you see the issues. So, so we're working through that and we're trying now to determine to reset our strategy for inventory efficiency. What do we need to be and how do we need to work? And that's what we're, we're doing right now is to understand now. And as we move forward, what will that skew stocking strategy be and then how would we set our supply chain mm-hmm. and a commercial ordering um, expectations up around that? Are you going to change your metrics? You know, we sort of had at a sidebar conversation at one point in time about about OEE and whether and sort of the traditional measures of of manufacturing are as appropriate in today's world where we want to become more resilient. Um, how do you feel about that? And are you changing any of your metrics? Yeah, I, I am a huge believer in evolving and transforming. And I think metrics should should evolve. I mean, you have revenue margin and cash. Maybe those should right stay the same. But, but the way we measure for the world around us, you have to evolve. And I, we were talking when you know when I was running my factory before the pandemic. I, that's why I was plant manager. So it was actually well before the pandemic. And OEE was a critical metric. It, it was a how efficient are you with your equipment that you have to be able to produce the most amount that you possibly have? Well, now, you know, when you think about make to order, when you think about the, the change that our commercial team wants to have in, in our SKUs, right? So I talked about GE appliances being a house of brands. Our commercial team has a strategy where they want to introduce new product at a faster rate. So in supply chain, you know, your first reaction is, please don't do that, right? We, we want consistency. I, I got my OEE running on this piece. Please don't make a you know, change. I got it all settled. I can't think like that anymore. And we can't have our plant managers now are thinking that OEE is the way they measure success for. And it's not. The way we measure success is can we fulfill what our customers are asking for on time in full for whatever design. And if they want to bring out new product all the time, because that's what it means to grow, then that's what we need to do. And it's about flexibility. It's about ensuring some pieces of equipment might have lower OEE on purpose because I'm not investing the time and energy because I need to make so much, but the, you know, the, the waste or the defects that come out of it, I'm only going to have that piece of equipment for a year or less. I might take that versus trying to put a lot of upfront engineering into something 
to make it perfect when it's not going to be a 10-year platform anymore. It's not going to last like it used to. So I think it's really important for us to have that understanding with our commercial team of what do we need where in the product. I might have another piece of the product like the, you know, uh, you talked about the dishwasher, your pump, your sub pump area. You want that to run reliably all the time with awesome quality. So my feedback to the commercial team is don't change that part of it. it. We need it to be consistent and reliable. You want to change the door handle or the dishwasher cup or the racks? Peace, right? I'm there. I will make that work for you. And that's how you get consistency that we can work in supply chain and I can deliver what we want for our commercial team. But changing that mindset of what success looks like in supply chain is critical. It's funny. One of the very first things I did when I when I came to Aceto was was build an OTIF platform in Power BI so I can slice and dice every every type of wrinkle, carriers, uh, warehouses, customers. I, I'd be able to slice and dice my data because I felt that was the most pivotal, pivotal measure inside my supply chain. Mm-hmm. I, I, I guess I wonder, Chris and Marsha, and this is sort of a group of colleagues talking here. Uh, do you... Um, uh, do you feel we took things like OEE and lean too far? That led to some of the fragility in the in the, in the supply chain. Yeah, I would say no doubt. I mean, just the the rise of globalization, and you know, for a long time, transportation was cheap, and it was all about you know capturing labor tra- arbitrage and you know far flung markets. And I think that that worked for a while, and that became the basis of competition uh, as the the world went around. And you know. I, you get so used to that black swan thing, right? Not happening, you know, what possibly could go wrong and, you know, here we are. Um, so yeah, I would absolutely, you know, concur with, with that idea of you know, potentially, you know, it's not going away. The slow those concepts are still relevant. But I think there's the fragility piece, but I think also just this, you know, I, my sense is this, you know, deterioration of just you know, the age of, of mass production, and just in terms of how consumption patterns work and, and how quickly human, you know, consumer tastes, right, evolve and, just trying to peg where that demand side was going to kind of come from and what channels at e-com is it brick and mortar. Um, just the, it seems like just the you know, product life are getting shorter and shorter and shorter. This used to be most more of an issue in, in high tech electronics, but even things like flavored water, you know, what's the next flavor of flavored water? Where's the, the, the demand going to be? How do I kind of source that? And, and it kind of flies in the face a bit, you know, to your point over on metrics of all this classical, you know, kind of, you know, just in time, right. Lean metrics of efficiency, 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 it works and, you know, until it doesn't work. So how do we kind of, you know, and what is the, the right balance to strike? You know, where again, the, the idea is not to shift everything from a, a make to order to, to March's point, but what is the right level of kind of flexibility and just, you know, natural agility people kind of build on their supply chains and how do you build the right set of metrics to, uh, to support that? There's two areas that I want to dig in and I'm going to turn it over to Bob in a second to ask the first question about technology. And then I'm going to follow up with the talent side, because what you're describing requires a very different technological platform, as well as a labor resource for your organization. So, Bob, why don't you kick us off on the technology side? Yeah, so we have one technologist here with Chris, and certainly I'm sure that Pat and Marcia are using technology. And, uh, you know, if you read all the emails that, uh, that I get on a daily basis, you would think that, one, first of all, everybody's already got robots and AI and machine learning and blockchain and whatever else we can think of. And that two, somehow or another, technology is going to create more warehouse workers and truck drivers and train cars and things like that. Uh, From the three of you, you know, Chris, maybe you can start because you're in the technology side. But 
what, how are you viewing the role of technology and where are you investing? Like when you look at your organization, where do you think you can get the most bang for your buck and the most value out of the technologies out there? Ahead, yeah, it's please. interesting. I think it's like, you know, everyone's you know, favorite strategy is, you know, we need more data science. You know, we're not sure what the problems are, but we hire some smart data scientists, we'll implant them and then, you know, give them a bunch of data to go through and they'll tell us you know, what to do. And, and that tends to be the, the easy button for a lot of folks and it, it almost never works. Um, you know, and, you know, we look at, you know, technology as an enabler. And we talked about collaboration in the past of, um, you know, a lot of the, you know, heartening response during the, the pandemic, you know, the crisis was an enhanced level of collaboration across trading partners. And, you know, and we look at the technology as an enabler to that. You know, and we look at, you know, first, you know, connect, you know, how do partners connect? You know, how do you just establish basic connectivity and how does that drive transparency? And if there's more transparency, that allows you to create more trust. And if you have more trust, that's only what drives you know, the end state of, the, of that collaboration, and, and you can't get there, you know, without good technology to to stitch these fragmented supply chains, you know, get together. Um, and I think the other side of that, where we see you know great application, is you know there's no shortage of data. You know, there's plenty of data out there, and you know we don't need necessarily help finding more data. You get you know sensors that are proliferating, you know ELD modules, you know, you know mountains of lat long timestamp, you know tracking data points that are you know, stacking up right somewhere. Um, you know, the challenge is you know, how do we how do we best mine that? And so, you know, what we often look at is, you know, what are, you know, one creative ways to aggregate different kinds of data, especially unstructured data, but how do we bring in the right skill sets to help us just think through kind of, you know, that have that, you know, critical reasoning kind of systems thinking of natural, you know, curiosity to help connect some of those patterns that we can take these mountains of data and actually derive meaningful information that then you can pull into the decision-making process of all the human beings that this technology is ultimately supporting. You know, so one, it's that, you know, connectivity, uh, you know, transparency uh, to build trust, but then how to bring all these data points together to help us, you know, make better decisions faster with often incomplete information. Uh, Marcia, Pat, where are you investing and why? Yeah, you know, for us, um, I think it's in two key areas. One is in data, not, and, and Chris is exactly right. We have more data than we know what to do with. So that's, that's not the issue. Uh, the problem that we're trying to solve is how do we make problems visible? And how do you, you know, I think Pat said it earlier, how do you make sure you have inventory, you, you can see what inventory you have at each node in the supply chain and that you can identify gaps of, um, in my case, so I'm talking distribution specifically, but gaps um, to inventory issues that are going to manifest themselves later on. Because if the customer is the one to tell me I have a problem, then I have a bigger problem because I, I didn't see that further down the stream to take action. The second is it has to be real time data information. So I can't be pulling spreadsheets and having people going in and manipulating tables and um, you know so forth. I need real time information. I want my human brain to be spending time on taking action with the data, not manipulating data. And when we spend too much time with that, the data becomes old and it's not relevant. The third is to make the work easier. Um, and that's, you know, I think there's two aspects to that. You know, one is certainly in terms of information flow, things we can trust systems to do and take action. I think we are too slow to assume a human has to check and balance everything to make an exception. We, we need to use more artificial intelligence to be able to take actions and move on some of the basic, you know, when you have standard work defined on how to respond to something. I think the second aspect is in the physical world. So like in warehousing, where labor is absolutely a, a major problem uh, for me and everybody else <laughs> right mm -hmm. now, we, we can't get enough labor or we, we're continuing in these wage wars uh, to try to find the labor to run our 
warehouses, we need to think of how we can use technology. And of course, you know, I love to have the technology of the future where I just have robots picking appliances mm -hmm. and moving things there, but we're not, we're not there yet. It, it, that doesn't make sense, but there are things we can do with robot assist. And there are things that we can do to help change the work to attract a different level of a you know, mindset of employee who doesn't want to come in and just do physical labor, moving appliances, even with a piece of equipment, they, but they will work with a robot and they do want to come in and do some tech, you know, high tech items that are in a warehouse. So if we can recreate the work for the technology we have now and invest in the future of being more autonomous, um, that's, that's what we're doing at G appliances with technology. Pat, what about you? Well, it's funny because Marsha talked about don't change the pump, leave the pump alone in the dishwasher. Well, that that pump assembly for our organization is our ERP system. So we're kind of leaving that alone. But on the edge of it, where well, we implemented a, a transportation management system, we brought in Salesforce.com, where we brought in PowerEye for, you know, to do a whole bunch of um uh, analytics that we didn't have prior, especially over the supply chain from purchasing from end to end from purchasing to to the execution on the transportation side. So we've created a much more measured supply chain. We have better insight into future demand. Um, and I think to one of Marsh's points, we're trying to make our work easier. So any of those little issues that just annoy the heck out of someone, we're trying to resolve. It's a technology solution. I'm sure you've seen countless studies about how people use ERP and APS solutions, and it's only 20, 30, 40% utilization. Even in best-of-class companies, we're trying to up the utilization level of the existing application we have to make everyone's job easier, to allow us to process more by exception, to, to do all the right things that you're supposed to be doing baseline. So I, I wish I could say that we're bringing in artificial intelligence. I'm not, I'm not sure artificial intelligence would have helped predict the black swan event mm -hmm. and the ne necessary reactions around it. Mm -hmm. So um, anyway, I, I, I think there's a step forward here that's, that's um, for us, that's better utilization of our assets that we currently have. Interesting points that you're making. And I think one of the things that we're seeing with almost every organization right now is that you can get funding for technology. Yep. Very few organizations right. say no to your technology investment. What we're not seeing is a commensurate investment in talent development, not only recruitment, but retention of these individuals. We spoke for quite a bit about the role and responsibilities that have enhanced or increased the job of supply chain professionals specifically on collaboration, communication, a lot of the soft skills that are not subject matter expertise or functional competencies that we see within traditional supply chain roles. So give me a sense, how are you, you know, responding to the talent issue? Marsha, let me give it, you know, give you a start. Yeah, so, um, you know, at G Appliances, we believe that it is our job to take care of our employees. And that means growing their skill set and helping them achieve their career ambitions. And so, um, there's several ways that we do that. You know, recruiting. We we certainly have strong partnerships with our colleges, universities, high school, um, locally, or in the areas that we um, that we work to support our community and to make sure that people understand what it means to have supply chain jobs. You know, whether you know again distribution, of course, but in the factories as well. I think a lot of it starts very early on and helping 
both parents, teachers, and students um, understand what those career progressions can look like and how they can have successful jobs. And so it's our job as a business to step in there. I think when we get employees into our company, like I said, it's really important that we communicate with them. You're not just in a job to do a job. It's, you know, what, what competencies can you develop in that role? And so we have taken an initiative during the pandemic, actually, to address this, um, to develop what we call competency models for every role in distribution. Uh, this does two things. One, for the employee who's in the role to understand what skills they should have, where their strengths and weaknesses are. They can use this as a talking point with their manager or themselves. And then in parallel with that, we have training classes identified. Hey, if you feel you're weaker in maybe a financial element that you have to do in your job, here's something you could do, or here's a or here's a mentor we can pair you with, or we can we can take action right on it to help develop the employee. The second thing we use the competency model for is for people to see where they can progress next. Mm -hmm. So sometimes we as a company want to say, oh, you're in this job. We want you to go there. But in this day and age, we need to make sure employees can have all kinds of different career paths in their head of where they might want to go. And so by creating and making, you know, writing it down, making it very visual, we can help employees be able to see opportunities that they may not have realized. I didn't even know. I heard that job, but I wasn't sure what it was. I want to learn that skill set. I want to go and do that. And so we can have a more productive conversation and a um, proactive conversation before employees think, well, I, what I need next, I need to leave the company to go do somewhere else. No, look, here, here are things that we can do. And so that's what we're trying to do to engage our workforce proactively and be able to help them see career progressions and how you know we can help them achieve their career dreams, if you will, um, at GE appliances. Yeah. Well, so I, I think everyone knows that supply chain in general is, has rarely been any 17-year-old's destination profession. <laughs> so you get a lot of non-traditional people running through supply chain. And I, I, with that in mind, I've been a really big proponent of professional developments. And, so I, and sometimes you have to throw out the rule book a bit and for example, I just hired someone in as an import representative who is a former filmmaker. And I think he worked on like the Maury show or something. <laughs> so, but we brought him in and, you know, as part of the condition of his employment within X number of months, he has to have a CLTD and he has to go get DOT training and, and all the sort of necessary type of training to, to do his job. But, uh, we're starting him off with with um, get him professional development right away, yeah. and and use the available organizations like yeah. yourself to uh, like like ASCM to do that. Uh, you have such a, a wealth of knowledge and a knowledge base. Why not leverage that? So, um, so I, for me, it's just a little bit of throwing out the old the old approach to doing things. I'm not going to be able to hire industrial engineers. Um, the way I used to be able mm -hmm. to do now it's now it's thinking a little bit different and because you have to think different on who you hire, you have to think different about how you professionally develop them. Yeah. I would echo a lot of what, uh, you know, what Pat and Marcia said, especially around just the importance of diversity of backgrounds and experiences and, 
uh, and education and, and bringing people that maybe wouldn't have come from an actually traditional, you know, pre-supply chain background, you know, onto the team and create a safe environment for those folks to, you know, share those experiences and, and level up the entire organization. So, so diversity is critical. You know, Flack, we're in a bit of a different stage of our growth trajectory, right? you know, than I would expect, you know, GE and Aceto where, you know, we are looking to double our organization, you know, next year. We're still in the early stages of what we think is going to be a, a, a rapid a couple of years of growth here um, in this kind of market. And so I think it's a super important for us. We've had a lot of, of success is, you know, we lead with, with mission. And our mission is to make supply chains more efficient and more sustainable through tech enabled shared truckload transportation. And so, you know, we're up front with a mission. We're the only uh, certified B Corp in transportation, as far as we know. And, and that kind of becomes a little bit self-selective of you get a lot of, of current employees bringing, you know, colleagues and, and, and cohorts you know, into, uh, into the organization. But we lead with mission, and if we find that if we can find folks that align with that mission, you know, it makes everything else a lot easier. Now, uh, we've got a few minutes left, and let me first say uh, thank you to Pat for a uh, shout-out for uh, our certifications. Obviously, uh, it, it does make a difference in individuals' careers. But I want to go back to a point that Marshall was making about the awareness of the opportunities that exist within supply chain at almost every level right now. Uh, we used to deal with senior leadership, uh, college graduates. Now we need to get into the middle schools. Now we need to create that awareness of the effectiveness and the positive aspect that supply chains bring. Well, obviously we've got a lot of areas that we can clean up to make it much more responsive to consumers and patients alike. But more importantly, as you're developing these strategies, I think it's a wonderful statement about the supply chain industry. We are responsive, we are resilient as an industry. We just need a little bit of time to catch up with a lot of the changes that are occurring here. But I think most of us do understand that we will come out of this. So uh, maybe a you know 30 second from each one of you. What what excites you about the future, Marsha? Yeah, definitely the um, technology. I think all the problems um, when we were doing our prep, Pat said his mom knows what he does now because she sees it in the news all the time. Right? About the, and I thought that was so funny. I went and talked to my mom. She's like, oh, yeah, totally. totally. But she said that we've had so much visibility of problems. I think we're going to have more people from different industries coming in and helping seed some ideas of what we can do. And so I think in the next five years, it's going to be exciting to see where technology takes us in supply chain. Chris, what are you excited about? Yes, I mean, it's, it's, you know, supply chain's never been sexier. For good or for worse, you can't go a day without seeing something you know, on the front page of the Wall Street Journal about poor congestion or, you know, doomsday inventory predictions on, on CNBC. And I think, you know, copper with Pat, I'm by myself trying to explain to my eight-year-old, you know, why all these boats are sitting idle right off the coast of right LA and Long Beach. And so I think that that spotlight, that visibility is there. And it just brings a lot of, I think, attention to what used to be kind of an unsung, uh, mm -hmm. industry full of unsung heroes are now finally right. getting sung. So I think that, level of importance is, is one inviting a lot of capital, which is driving a lot of uh, you know, tech innovation, but I think also in inviting a lot of, a lot of talent. And if we can kind of leverage that resiliency and all that collaboration that, that we built, you know, during the, during the pandemic, you know, I, I think the, the best days are ahead for sure. Chris, what excites, Pat, what excites you? Well, I think there's two things. I, I think now leadership inside of organizations understands how important supply chain is. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a lot of work was just done behind the scenes and kind of invisible to leadership. And I think leadership across many organizations now values their supply chain function much more than they did prior. And, and to be honest with you, now I can go to a cocktail party. I could talk about my work and people aren't, aren't bored. Like, wow, 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 wow. 
Supply chain is sexy. Supply chain is interesting. And with that, I'm going to say thank you to our uh, panelists as well as to our members for joining us today. Have a great day. And more importantly, continue sticking with us and let us know how we're doing. All the best, everyone. Thanks, Abe. Thanks, everyone. Bye now. The Rebound is a joint production of the Association for Supply Chain Management and Supply Chain Management Review. For more information, be sure to visit ASCM.org and STMR.com. We hope you'll join us again.